Welcome to Know Your Options, the Measured Risk Podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. So welcome to the show. My name is Larry Kriesmer. I'm with the Know Your Options podcast. My partner here, Bernard Sorofsky, and we have a special guest today, Paul Lim, and he's with the actually acting today as a board and board advisory for the San Diego Financial Literacy Foundation. And he's been active in this space and active as a financial advisor, and we're interested in learning more about him and his practice. So welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you guys for having me. Welcome. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, I mean, let's maybe start with your passion. That appears to be financial literacy. So tell us how you got involved with that organization and maybe a little bit more about the organization here in San Diego. Sure. You know, I really think that when certain industry insiders see themselves as the gatekeepers of information, it's not really fair to the public because the hard reality is that none of the most important topics are taught in public schools. And I think that that's just a huge disservice to people who are working very hard to make ends meet and make sense of these various moving parts that we have in our system. And I just think it's wrong for them not to be equipped with the same information because it truly impedes their ability to make wise financial decisions through no fault of their own, really. And, and things are made complicated on purpose. And I just see it as my mission to just cut through all of that, to demystify these things and then empower people so that they can realize these are not as complicated as it appears at first glance. Well, you know, I have to agree with you so much. It's, it's- boggled my mind that I've sometimes sat with people who are you know, highly educated people with, you know, sophisticated degrees and, you know, start asking them just elementary questions about compounding and just that, and just, it's like I'm speaking a foreign language and, you know, just ideas like dollar cost averaging and, you know, just those concepts and not to even get specific, but I mean, what are some of the tools that you're using to try and engage people more with this? Yeah, I mean, I'll steal a little something from Tony Robbins here. I think he does a really good job of saying that the best way to explain something is to attach an unknown to unknown. And so utilizing analogies, I think that it's, it's, it's too much in our business. And, and I'm stealing this from other people who are in the business of understanding persuasion and, and things of that nature. But things what I've always found to be helpful are that analogies are good for explanations because you're linking a known to something that's unknown. Known, And then if you're trying to persuade somebody, you're trying to get someone to change their mind about something from one thing to another, analogies don't work because you're actually talking about a completely different subject. So if I tell you, oh, what's a bond? I'll say a bond is a $1,000 IOU. And then you can bring up that scene in Dumb and Dumber where they have that big box where they've spent all the money and they say, you see these? These are IOUs. These are as good as money. And then people kind of understand it and they 
laugh. And it's, it's kind of correct if you think about what that is. Yes, there are some nuanced differences in items of that nature, but do you see how you're able to connect a known to an unknown? Because we've all seen that movie, we laughed about it, and everyone knows what an IOU is. You don't need any particular degree in order to explain what that is. But bond is so nebulous and it's so strange, it's not a good word to use. And so that's an example of something you can do very quickly in order to link unknown to an unknown. And that is a way to explain a foreign concept. But if you're trying to change somebody's mind to think something they didn't think before and then move in a certain direction, that's the art of persuasion. That's a little bit different, and analogies don't work in that case because you're literally talking about something totally different. So it sounds like you've had some experience in, you know, put quite a bit of thought into this. What is some of your background training that's led you to all these interesting conclusions? You know, it, it's hard to really give attribution to all the different sources from which I draw a lot of these. And, and, you know, I will just begin most conversations by saying that none of these things I bring up are my original ideas. You know, uh, David Bowie once said that the key to being an excellent songwriter is to be a clever thief. And so then you kind of incorporate <laughs> So, you know, I really like that idea, and I've always just been gravitating towards people who have a priority towards excellence. It's just exciting, and it really motivates you to try to compete and become better. And it's not a short answer to your question. It's, it's a lifetime of being exposed to various things. But more, more than anything, it's, it's, it's wanting to look for those things and then being able to tell a charlatan from a good practitioner is helpful too because there's way too many people who are elevated for the wrong reasons, not because they're excellent, but because they're great at marketing or something else. And I've just always disliked that end result and put way more emphasis on quality of the product and the quality of the commercial, if I wanted to put it figuratively. No, it's an episode. I love that analogy. I think analogy, it's something you know, right? Because, yeah, there are, I've, I've always admired the people who can walk into the room and are just charismatic and charming. And they typically, it's hard to prepare that same person with a whole lot of financial knowledge. But as long as they find a team that can back them up, you know, and, and be that sort of rainmaker or something, that's a, that's a, it's a great combination for a firm, you know, for a you know, financial advisory team. Let's talk about your education. You have uh, a couple of letters after your name. So why don't we go through that? Sure. So, you know, certified financial planner, professional designation is somewhat similar to CPA in the tax world and items of that nature. It's a, it's a fairly rigorous exam, but really what it's meant to do is, is to show that you're serious about learning new things. I, I would tell you that you don't learn things directly from institutions of higher education that you can implement immediately in your business. But what it does, it does a couple things for you. One, it'll surround you with good people so that you set reasonable standards for yourself and that you are able to be around peers who are moving in the right direction and going places in life rather than just kind of treading water, so to speak. 
But then also, I'd say there's a handful of courses that were really important, and I think that if you walk into this business without some of those foundational concepts, at least in the back of your recollection, you're going to be at a big disadvantage, and, and things are going to seem more magical to you than they really are. So, I, you know, statistics, econometrics, all the econ classes, writing is sort of a non-obvious one. Uh, learning how to write very well and, and to be grammatically correct in your prose and and to speak in ways that are not too colloquial, you can just tell whether or not someone reads or not, or if they're just one of these people who are excellent at uh, shaking hands and kissing babies, to use the political sort of <laughs> frame there, right? So um, I think that those classes, plus accounting, oh, accounting was a really important one. Uh, the thing you take away from econometrics and some of the investment classes that you'll take is that you will actually do a lot of the calculations for alpha and sharp ratio and, and standard deviation by hand so that you can see the mechanics of it. But no one does that in real life because we all have software that can just kick that out for us. But once you get your hands dirty and you can actually see what it looks like, you understand not only the moving parts and why a report might manifest a certain result, but it also makes it seem like it's not so, so magical to you either. If I can share that kind of a quick story here, um, econometrics will utilize software to do a lot of the regression analysis that we see as Monte Carlo, right? Monte Carlo, you're basically just rolling the dice a bunch of times and then seeing which combo comes up most frequently if you think about it. And that, that's the way to stress test the portfolio to see whether or not there's even the remote possibility that you'll achieve the rate of return you need to hit a certain target by a certain point in time, for example, right? But using that software and then playing with it a little bit gets you to realize, like, huh, I see what's going on here, and I can actually manipulate a certain amount of variables and then kick out a very official-looking output, but I know what I did there, and I manipulated that result. I kind of had a hand in that, right? And so now I'm very suspicious of people who will use a graph to try to compel a person to think that their assertion has credibility when in fact all you have to do sometimes is regress, regress until you get the curves you want, and then you can fit it to validate your hypothesis. I've had college professor friends tell me sometimes that one of their workarounds when data isn't giving them quite what they want, they'll kind of whisper it with a uh, sort of hushed tone that they basically clicked a bunch of times in order to get the curve that they wanted. So, so that knowing that, knowing that insider information helps you to apply proper skepticism when you see something. And if you don't understand what things look like behind the scenes, you're just going to be wide-eyed and in awe of that because you have a cursory understanding of what it works. Okay. That's a great, you know, that's a great story. It reminds me of a story when I was at college and I'm doing my thesis and whatever the topic was, it was, but I went to my professor and I said, you know, where do I begin? And he said, you begin with a conclusion. I'm like, what? <laughs> he said, you, you begin with what you want to conclude and then you find the data to support that position. 
And I was like, well, isn't that something? He said, <laughs> that's, called, that's called sharpshooter fallacy, Bernard. I don't know what it's called, but I was like, what? <laughs> I'll, I'll teach this one to you guys. It, it's awful, but this is what happens, and this is the way to encapsulate this in a story because humans are very story-driven people, and, and yeah. this is the way you can have a lot of ways to explain certain unobvious concepts. So basically, there once was a farmer, and he had a barn, and he took a machine gun, and he shot a bunch of rounds into the side of the barn. And then what he did was he looked for a very close grouping of bullet holes, and he drew a bullseye around them and declared himself a sharpshooter. That's the sharpshooter. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly. great. Yeah, that's great. But it introduced that whole concept of skepticism, you know, like yeah. if reports are put together, you know, it could be, you know, some kind of, I mean, almost like anything, there's, there's always going to be a bias in that data that's been presented, especially when it's, you know, back tested or something, you know, it's, uh, I know it's confusion I want, I'm just going to find the data to support it. This is easy. I mean, well, I it's think, ridiculous. I think also you're, you're very on point with understanding how numbers get cranked out of software, because if you don't have a sense of what a reasonable Sortina ratio should be, given what the pattern looks like, and the system is giving you a number and you don't have any basis for reference, then you're just going to believe that number. And uh, particularly if you're doing your own calculations or trying to build your own something using Excel or something that isn't a uh, program software, you can really find yourself you know, relying on numbers that are completely wrong. So, um, yeah, and you know, sort of back to financial literacy, I think that's an area where if you have just the simplest kind of thing, like having a product that's on sale for 20%, I think many people struggle to figure out what 20% of that number is. They just know that a 20% sale is better than a 10% sale or that a 30% is you know a better sale than a 15% sale. But push comes to shove, trying to get someone to be able to come up with what that number is would be sometimes like off by a factor of a lot, particularly on a larger purchase. So you want to talk a little bit about what you do in, at the at the financial literacy group to um, educate people or what some programs are? Yes, you know, some of the programs that we've been doing most frequently, you know, prior to the world getting a little strange a few years ago was we used to do these in-person financial opportunity clinics to various underserved communities, let's say, and I would have credentialed financial professionals show up on a Saturday morning and then meet people who bring binders of information, some of whom have never talked to an advisor before, and then we're there to just help them get some direction Sometimes it's just as basic as paying yourself first, you know, that whole um, idea. And then um, other times they just need to be told the difference between a traditional and Roth IRA to understand what it is that they have, right? So it, it just ranges quite a bit, but I found those to be very rewarding because we as advisors tend to live in a bit of a bubble where everyone with whom we work is upper to middle class just by definition and, and, and things of that nature. So you get to see the other side of things. And I've, tell, I've told people it, it's like playing financial advisor on hard mode because a lot of our strategies are really meant for the seven-figure net worth type individuals. But as soon as you can deal with people who just need to be told that they're not earning enough and, and, and need to be given some ways in which to 
get raises or to utilize ratios to say you shouldn't be spending more than a third of your income on housing, realistically speaking. And it just helps them to get a reality check of the thing. Maybe some of them are walking in there expecting to be presented with some silver bullet that would give them the appreciation they need to make more happen with less, but that's just not the case. And so bringing them to that reality and then understanding people's misconceptions about money at the very lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, it, gets, it makes it so you don't lose touch with the common man. And so it humbles you a little bit, but then also you do great value when you're able to show someone, look, I'm going to show you how this works. I'm doing it out of the goodness of my heart, not because I'm trying to make a buck, that kind of a thing. So I've loved that one. Boost for our heroes is something we were doing with uh, members of the military. They'll submit applications and we'll give out just straight grant checks to some of them. We were doing programs at one point for schools, but things have got a little strange with schools, and so we're hoping to kind of ramp that back up. And um, we've got other initiatives that are happening, but a lot of the pro bono clinics have been occurring by Zoom more than anything else. But um, those were interesting developments. But that's a brief overview of some of the programs that the Financial Literacy Center has done today, and we're hoping to truly expand those in very exciting ways um, now that we've got the technology piece figured out and, and we hope to share some exciting updates with you forthcoming. Yeah. Do you know, so I'm ignorant about this, so we've got a national footprint on the podcast here. Are, is this uh, financial literacy something that is um, popping up all over cities, all over, the, all over the place, or is it relatively rare, or do you have any sense of what it is outside of San Diego? You know, I can't tell you about what the footprint is outside San Diego, but I'll tell you that uh, as far as Southern California is concerned, we get a lot of traffic coming our way. And, you, you know, as, as RIAs, as you may be, uh, we're able to do business with people in, in other states and at items of that nature. So even if someone happens to be out of state, if you're licensed in that state or at least you have some semblance of understanding about unique laws that apply only there, you still can do a great deal of, uh, of advice rendering for those kinds of customers. So, so the answer is, I don't think other people have been copying our model, but my goal is to make it so that people wish to do that in other cities. Everything just takes a little bit longer than we'd like because this is really a volunteer activity outside of my duties as a practicing financial advisor. Or so. Do you find yourself with more people to help than you have advisors to volunteer, or is it sort of a, a good ratio right now, or what are you saying? We're always looking for people who are ethical and competent and are good at explaining various things with a well-rounded capability because I can't have someone just come in and talk about investments or just talk about insurance if that's the only thing they do because, you know, the man with a hammer sees every problem as a nail, right? So we can't have... You you were talking about you had some initiatives at schools. What kind of grades are you looking to make an impact on? What, what, What grade level? High school. High school, great. Yeah, I, I was marveled at the fact that why we don't have some kind of requirement in high school, then be it eighth, eighth, ninth grade, thereabouts, where it's, you know, kids just have to take a course for one quarter just to learn the basics of financial literacy. It's, it boggles my don't know. How many clients do you have that are teachers? Yes. Yeah, well, the teachers don't know, and yeah. they can't teach it. So, okay, but get, I mean, you know, there's no shortage of financial experts out there who would 
you know, you could draw on and then start building from there. I mean, you have to start somewhere, but just I'll shit. tell you what, what else is a truly unintended consequence. Because of the litigious environment in which we work, God bless compliance for keeping us all out of jail and things of that nature, but they tend to err on the side of way too much caution to the point where you cannot give somebody a presentation that will be both interesting, entertaining, and compelling because they want you to stay within these very vanilla guardrails that really stop you from saying anything. And if someone were to misconstrue something you say and then be damaged because they didn't fully comprehend what you were trying to illustrate or because there was one particular caveat that made that not viable for their particular situation, you can understand why they would rather not have that information be proliferated in the interest of saving themselves from a lawsuit. So that's just that's just some of the problems that are out there. If there were yeah. a way to um, provide like a, a blanket disclaimer or something of that nature where everyone goes in with informed consent, understanding this for educational purposes only, that kind of a thing, maybe it'd be a bit more flexible in that way. But my, my vision would be to have some place where uh, people can have them, so, some very easy, digestible resources to be taught the basics of these things and to not have the lawyers stifle creativity and, and, and really important, impactful lessons. Yeah. Quick question about, you know, I've been on a board of one or two nonprofits and I assume financial literacy is a nonprofit. How do you go about fundraising? What sort of revenue sources do you have to keep the operations running? We, we don't solicit donors. Our overhead is very low, and we tend to implement grants from various um, associations and, and items of that nature. So um, uh, Financial Planning Association, Foundation for Financial Planning, they have really done an amazing job at demonstrating their commitment to teaching the working people about these concepts that simply are not taught. And we do our best to execute on that vision and none of us are in that for any particular profit motive or anything like that. We, we really believe in, in the mission of it. And uh, I know that uh, I've been saying this frequently, but the goal is within a couple of years to be you know, the standard for having people go to us for uh, no cost to consumer financial education. And that has yet to manifest, but like I said, it's in the works. Hey, you gotta put it out there, what's gonna happen? You know? What is that a term I learned a long time ago? B hag, B H A G, a big hairy audacious skull. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so that sounds like a good one. Yeah. Uh, you were uh, featured on San Diego's Thirty Under Thirty. What was how did that come about, or how did you find yourself? I and mean, does any impact from that? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I got to meet some state senators who were looking for uh, exemplars, I think, for the younger generation, and um, it has to do with really elevating best practices for people who are not necessarily in our business, but who need a vision for themselves, because we don't have enough role 
models that will excite young people these days. You see young people tend to be, through no fault of their own, you know, gravitating towards the celebrities, the rock stars, the athletes, the this, but there's not enough room for wanting to be a competent, accomplished professional. It's boring. It's seen as something that is not glamorous. People would rather be entertained than to laud the accomplishments of wonderful working professionals. I mean, how many people can name the CEOs of these various oil companies that provide a bunch of energy? They'll focus all on the externalities, the seagull covered with oil and things of that nature. And, and yes, that's true too, but that could be said for every industry. But you, you think about the people who really make the world go round. You know, who is the president of the top semiconductor corporation right now in America? No one knows that face or name. But all of a sudden, if someone was on one obscure TV show, that's all people talk about, right? So it's not fashionable or trendy to advance accomplishments in business unless you see that person conspicuously consuming and flaunting their wealth. That's the only period when that is elevated. But I, I think that a lot of those programs were, were put in place to give young people something to strive for, aside from being beautiful or athletic or able to sing some songs or dance or that kind of thing. Right, or be an influencer of some flavor. Yeah. I mean, it, it does beg the question, who, in, in your life, who do you view as a you know person of influence or, or mentors kind of entity like in, in your life or you? Hmm. That, that, that's a really good question. You know, I tend to look, and this is kind of a Tim Ferriss thing. I'm stealing this from him, but basically, he said in his books that what he looks for are the strange outlier kind of people. So, for example, if you found some basketball player that was short but was still very excellent, that is the kind of person that would really stick out to him because he'd be like, wow, from the outside perspective, that person seems like they would be at a great disadvantage, and yet they still manage to thrive. And then what he'll do is he will drill down on those persons' practices, rituals, methodologies, philosophies, in order to really distill what it is that results in actual performance because you might just think, oh, you have to be tall so you're closer to the basket. But those anecdotal examples prove that that's just one factor in a weighted average and that if you can maximize these things in other areas, despite being a short basketball player, you can still thrive. So he looks for people like that and then tries to either interview them or he will utilize various other methods and then use himself as a guinea pig and then implement those to see if he can duplicate it on his own. So I guess you could say Tim Ferriss in, in terms of his approach in, in, in looking at people, but I think that he was able to put into words something that I was kind of looking for anyway, but um, didn't really have a way to articulate prior to him putting that into writing. So I always look for the weirdos who are out there <laughs> because there's something going on there that the is beyond. Weirdos. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it's not just the immutable characteristics that are going to get you to where, where they are. There is something to be said for effort. 
Oh my gosh! Yes. Let me rewind uh, the clock quite a bit. What what was the first spark that said, "Yeah, okay, financial services or advising"? Was that the college thing, or was it a internship, or what? What brought you to the business in the first first place? Yeah, I mean, I think I thought it was always very interesting how one could make money with money, and then you can not really readily find many other businesses where there is immediate quantifiable tangible value that you can measure in numbers and percents and items of that nature. And the concept of making money from the money was always intriguing to me. As I kind of went down the rabbit hole and learned a little bit about our monetary system and, you know, I don't know if we want to talk about fractional reserve lending or fiat currency or things like that, but I just realized that the, the way in which people think it actually works and the way that things truly work in real life was just so shock. It was shocking to me. I mean, I, I was like shake. I was trembling like when I really figured out the way things were. I mean, honestly, if the public knew how banks really worked, there would be a revolt on Monday. I think Andrew Jackson said that at one point. He was right. And, and, and that was absolutely true. And so uh, I think that when I went into the profession, I thought it was going to be something. And as I started to dig deeper in the layers of the onion, because I'm just curious, you have to be intellectually curious. Sometimes I, I want to know the reason behind something just because I'd, I'd like to know. And unless you have that hunger and that drive, you're going to be unaware of the way that the game is being played around you and there are these invisible rules that are affecting you beneath the surface and they're, you're blind to them. And so I think that the mission kind of changed very early on in the career. But what I really wanted to do was find out how it is that you manifest more money with money and understanding the art of doing that was something that was, was driving me. The other big reason why I got into the profession is because economics is the way to predict human behavior with math and graphs and things of that nature. It's, it, it's amazing. I would tell you that economic incentives and being able to model the way that people will change their consuming and spending and saving decisions based on a mathematical formula it's more predictive than maybe even clinical psychology because everyone cares to some degree about money, whether they even realize it or not. And so economics takes something that's ugly, which is human selfishness, and it turns it into something beautiful, which is the efficient allocation of resources and things of that nature. So I'll give you an example just to show you what I mean, right? And then, and then we can use an anecdote about how government meddles with this and then shoot themselves in the foot in the process. I don't know if you remember, but there was this one particular weather event that affected New Jersey, and there were these gasoline shortages, and then there were these people who were selling gasoline to people at these inflated prices, and the governor at the time made that practice completely illegal because he was saying that there is no justifiable reason why someone should price gouge and profit from the 
fact that there is scarcity in this particular commodity. And on the surface, that sounds well and good, and for politics, that would probably work well. But if you really think about it, no one's putting a gun to your head and forcing you to buy that. It's a voluntary exchange. If someone wants the gasoline that badly, they should be allowed to engage in that voluntary exchange. And then that would have shortened the lines, because there would have been at least some people who said to themselves, you know what, I'm willing to pay a premium in order to get the thing right now. And actually, by making that practice illegal, you shrunk the supply curve. You sent it left, and you, went, you made the price go higher as a result of doing that. You see, if you had let enough of those supposed um, opportunists who were malevolent when viewed through a political lens, eventually you would have had more people flock into that business and wanting to do the same thing, which would have increased the supply, which would have brought down the price because then these people would have had to compete with each other and then do a race to the bottom. That's the paradoxical thing. And someone who understands economics would understand that that move was very dumb. But if you don't understand that, well, of course you're going to do the thing that is simply justified from a, a, a moral perspective, however you want to define that. So anyway, I, I like that economics was a way to take human selfishness and not not to try to eliminate it with forceful authoritarian policies, but to embrace it, to understand it, and then to harness that energy in a productive direction. That's what I loved about economics. Yeah, that's more like judo rather than boxing. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, bud. Yeah. Exactly. You, you can borrow that just as long as you quote it. <laughs> Good so far about attribution in this conversation. Well, no, you mean fantastic. Absolutely, yes, exactly. Well, you're honest about it on the front end, so that that makes sense. Yeah. Well, listen, Paul, we've spent a good uh, half hour together, and we typically get to the this part of the program and ask if there's anything that maybe we should have asked you that we didn't ask you. Um, that that's a very good question. You know, uh, when it comes to practitioners who have the same level of competency. I, I, I do tend to speak in a different manner than with the general public, and it's nice when industry professionals have a certain bond and an understanding of things, because we can hang and we can use vernacular without having to define it, uh, and it makes the, the conversation kind of go a lot quicker. So, I mean, I, I really like the fact that you guys have this podcast that, that seems like it's uh, uh, made by advisors for advisors in a certain way. It, it's very interesting kind of what, what, you, what you've been doing in this space. It's interesting. I like the show, and, and so I hope more people will tune in. Well, I really Thanks. appreciate that. Thanks for the endorsement. Thank you. Yeah. Again, we've been here with today with Paul Lim with the San Diego Financial Literacy Organization and fellow, fellow financial advisor. And thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for inviting me on. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP.